Stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Corn in the fields, and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is sure they come. I work for the union, cause she's so good to me. so sad when I have to turn this volume down on this music. I love that song. I've gotten to really feel, it's like, I don't think I kick off the show without it. It's uh, it's a happy thing. Yeah. You know? And I, I wonder if the audience feels the same way. But, you know, I was going to say that we, this is the Organic Farm Stand. My name is Richard Hill. Laura Model is here. Steve Munno is also with us from Masaro Farm. We're all here. Chris is maybe coming. He's, he's trapped in wage slavery, so we don't know if he'll be able to... Yeah, he thought he would be here, but... Shake off the chains of wage slavery. <laughs> but hopefully he'll show up. And uh, this is the Organic Farm Stand once again. So, um, you know, I wonder if we should, you know, just lift the curtain and show people what happens behind the scenes here. No, they How, can't handle that. No, <laughs> <laughs> You want the truth? <laughs> <laughs> well, just, I was going to say, you know, like the things we do to make this show happen. Oh my gosh. Yes. A like, lot. I, you know, like I drive from Brantford, hair raising, I'm driving like 75 miles an hour on um, I-95. I'm on, I take route eight and I'm, a, yeah, today I was really rushing. And, but we're both about 40 minutes away. Yeah. I mean, so like you're coming from the North Country. Yeah. Which for some reason is called Southbury or something. Yeah. <laughs> Why is it there called Southbury? There is South no Northbury, I don't think. Why is it called Southbury? Somebody screwed up. Somebody really made... It's not South, no. And Woodbury is not Wood. <laughs> Middlebury is not middle of the it, state. It would, it would if it could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, are you still with us? <laughs> he's he's I'm, I'm here. I'm away. trying to think of what Southbury could be south of, and there's got to be Wood and Woodbury. So yeah, <laughs> I'll find out before the next show. All right, yeah, and uh, Steve Muno, who's out there on Masaro Farm. Steve, just uh, for people who are joining us for the first time, an inconceivable idea. But what uh, wh what's the uh, kind of landmark for Masara Farm. Tell people once again how to get there. Well, we're just west of New Haven. So Masaro Farm is, is in Woodbridge, and we're right on the border of Ansonia, actually. So as I look out one in one direction to the to the west, I see Ansonia, and to the east, I look into into Woodbridge, and then we're, what we're just outside of um, 
New Haven. So if you were in downtown New Haven and you took uh, Whaley Avenue out, and it will become Fountain as you go up the hill, and then you follow that. It's also Route 243 or Amsonia Road. You take that all the way up to the top of the hill, 482 feet of elevation. You are at Masaro Farm when you take a right onto Ford Road and, and climb up a little higher. Yeah. So it's really pretty easy to get there. I mean, there's the barn. A, there's a barn that's there's a, a red good barn. landmark. Yep. Yeah, yeah. that's what field. I use for the landmark. Yep. Yeah. And Masaro Farm is a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. It's a nonprofit which really serves the community in many ways. Uh, Steve, why don't you give us once again a little pricey about sure. about what Masaro does in the community yeah. and the different yeah. activities that happen there. Absolutely. So we are a certified organic farm, um, and we are a nonprofit organization. We sort of fulfill our nonprofit obligations through um, donating produce to health and human service and hunger relief organizations uh, in the greater New Haven and lower Naugatuck Valley region. Um, so, you know, we are harvesting year-round. The, the main part of our harvest season is June through October, but each week we are uh, donating produce to uh, agencies that serve people in need, you know, in this area. Uh, and we also offer on-farm educational programs and events throughout the year. So, actually, today we have a homeschool group that's here with us uh, for a few hours. We have uh, an after-school program uh, that serves both Woodbridge and Ansonia. Uh, we have a number of workshops for for adults as well. So there's lots happening on the farm, uh, annual events and things as well. So uh, many programs and opportunities for the community to get engaged uh, on the farm and, and with the farm. Okay, and we'll hear about any upcoming activities in, when we get to the Small Farms Report in just a minute. Chris but, uh, is here. <laughs> oh my God, Chris showed up. Chris, Startled I, me. I heard you talking about me. You, yeah. You, you shook off the chains of wage slavery, the yeah. shackles, yeah. and uh, you made it here. That's amazing. We, we were telling people about the, you know, behind the scenes things that people have to do. Like we had to drive great distances and you had to shake off the chains of wage slavery. There you go. Um, Oh, wait one second. Ah, oh, no, just headphones. There we go. Um, so anyway, yeah, and actually, I um, it's I'm not as close. I was four miles away. Now I live in Hampton, so it's about twenty five miles. You live in Hampton? Yeah, I moved to Hampton. Just like that. You, uh, you abandoned your your, uh, your I, homestead. Your... I was required to uh, leave the, my premises. <laughs> Why? My so, my landlord's daughter. Um, lost where she was living, so therefore I have to leave so her daughter can move in. Isn't that amazing? And yeah. so you had to leave your your little garden. Yeah, I had to abandon my. I mean, I put twelve years of effort into that making like the best the best soil you could find anywhere. Really? I had to. Uh, I and had to you, leave it behind. And and what about your garlic and the things that you already planted? Uh, there's nothing left, just tomato, just this year, this season, tomatoes okay. and hot peppers. You didn't plant garlic yet. No, I usually I'm uh, I'm slow. I usually don't do that till December. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't even know, Steve. Is it is it even time to plant garlic? It's kind of we're, early. We're just getting there. You know, we, we usually look at the first week of November for us. But mm -hmm. um, if you you know, we can get more into this. But this is a fine time to start planting. And at least prepping the ground to, to plant. Yes. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's quite a uprooting. 
Do yeah, you, it is. It's, it's um, a gardening uh, it's sli- analogy. Slightly heartbreaking. Well, you, you might be happy to know our guest today um, you know, is an entomologist with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, and they have a farm in Hamden. Oh, okay, cool. So you should look into that. Yeah, I did inquire about a public garden. I think they have a community one at a, at a community center, but I haven't done um, There's a whole lot of great stuff in Hamden. I know there's, um, I, I can't think of anything. But there's good. I know there's great. It's stuff a very there. interesting town because it's it's urban and suburban. Yes, it con- is. Country. It's got some, yep. The, we got the the uh, rail trail going through there, the Farmington Canal Trail. That's right. So it's a, it's an interesting mixed you know community. I know they, and I'm not going to be able to give you names and locations, but they discovered this property that had been. I think it may have been an actual developed industrial site, but, you know, the 19th century or something. Mm-hmm. And they rehabilitated it and they cleaned it up. And now it's a pretty extensive hiking park trail with a lot of um, um, wetlands and uh, lakey type stuff. Hmm. What, you want to give your report, right? I do, okay. because well, I do have a longer well, than usual well, one, and we want to have time just, for Steve, and then yeah, our, guest, our special guest is coming up, and she's um, Kelly Kelsey Fisher. With She's an agricultural entomologist scientist with the Agricultural Experiment Station, and she's going to tell us about her research with bumblebees, monarch butterflies, and spotted lanternfly. Oh, those dreaded spotted yeah, yeah, we don't I've, like those. I've never seen one. I know they're uh, quite, uh, they're going crazy in New York City. <laughs> yeah, they're, also, well, they're also, in. I, I've heard spottings, a lot of spottings in Fairfield County. Oh, okay. Anyway. We're on the lookout for them. So, all right, let's uh, stop the gibble gabble. Uh, have we had enough gibble gabble? Uh, yeah, right. well, we, I mean, Laura broke in, so she might as well just do it. We've had, you know, gibble gabble actually turns, <laughs> it turns out it's very high in protein. So, uh, yeah, it can't hurt you. Gibble, gibble gabble. gabble is is organic. We hope. <laughs> okay. Laura so, yeah, I just, you know, like yeah. I said, I have a little extra today. So um, I'll just start out by saying that we have 10 hours and 58 minutes of daylight today. That's from sunrise to sunset. That's getting pretty chintzy. It is, but, um, and we have 28 minutes on either end for twilight. And we've lost 36 minutes since the last show in the last oh, two weeks, God. right? Brutal but, and brutal, and but, you know it's it's um sorry to break in. I'll I'll get right back to you. Um, I noticed that, and it's it seems extreme. Like all of a sudden, it's like getting dark. It seems like six o'clock, kind of almost. Well, yeah. the sun sets at six oh six. Oh, there okay. you go. You were right on. And yeah. the winter solstice is only sixty three days away, so that's good. And I mean, it's it was ninety days away very recently, so that is. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty soon it'll be here. Apparently, those days keep decreasing. I noticed that. That's yeah. amazing. So every time we have a show, there's less days there's, till the winter solstice. There's less days. So wow. then, yeah, the next so, show there'll be. A, that's amazing. Be, it's astounding. I don't for know. For the next that. show, there'll be um, like you know less. There'll be 14 days less. So there'll be like 49 days. And then when the solstice comes, then it starts getting light out. Right. That's again. the whole point. So then um, 
We have a, a full moon, full hunter's moon on October 28th, which, you know, seems pretty obvious that it's named that because it signaled the time to go hunting in preparation for the winter. Um, it's not a super, super moon. It's not a super moon. And that makes me so sad. We're not going to, it's going to be a year till the We're next. Like- a Our year? next, it's September, October and, next year. And come on, there's only one full moon this month where... I know, what, just one and two? it's not a... No, that was August, but yeah. Oh, okay. And, um, but we, we do have a partial lunar eclipse during the full moon, um, which, you know, it, a lot of people will see it, but not us. Um, and it'll be very, very shallow partial lunar eclipse, and it'll be visible in Europe, Africa, Asia, and Western Australia. But, but I know you're <laughs> like, why are you telling us, Chris, no. right? But there, there's energy to them that is felt all around the world. They, the, the full moon signal endings, and when there's any kind of eclipse, it makes that energy bigger. And so, what does that mean? You mean like the psychic energy or the just endings? You know? Oh, you okay. know, like this, this, like if you moved, I mean, who, who knows? It could be from that because it, it's effective a month before and a month after. Hmm. So okay. we also have. Um, a meteor shower that is about to peak this weekend called the Orion Ids, which is, um, you know, they actually, we get them every October, well, every fall, and they're from September 26th to November 22nd, but they peak the mornings of October 21st and 22nd this Saturday and Sunday. But you'll be happy to know, Richard, morning doesn't mean 7 a.m. It means 12 midnight to dawn. So you might, yeah. and, and if there, and, and there's only, um, there's only a fraction, of, there's like a quarter full of the moon, but um, then, or this mm. weekend. And so it'll, it, it won't disrupt viewing, but the rain might. Yeah. And, oh yeah. It's supposed to know, rain. And these are um, fast moving, some of the fastest moving meteor showers uh, we have because Earth um, hits the stream of them directly. And they are the, um, the meteors come from Halley's Comet, which er- orbits the sun about every 78 years. But every fall we get the, 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 this tail of them here. And... Um, I'm not, I have all that written, but I'm not going to. But um, our next show is November 2nd. And um, I just want to mention that next Thursday, October 26th, the Connecticut League of Conservation Voters will hold a climate coffee and conversation with lawmakers Tony Wong, State Senator Tony Wong, and State Representative Ann Hughes. And um, that's on the 26th from 10 to 11.30 a.m. at the Eastern library community room and i speaking of environmental issues you may recall that my on my first show with you guys i talked about the south park avenue property Mm. in easton and how they well the sale of um 19 acres went through on october 2nd finally went through for aspetic land trust because they got a grant from the state so it could finally go through and their their properties along the mill river but then um, the other 10.6 acres has a, will have, has a conservation easement that the town voted to put on a town 
residents voted to put on it. And I caught up with David Brand, who's the executive director of the Land Trust, and he said land doesn't preserve itself. And that since 2020, Aspect Land Trust has preserved 187 acres of land. And he said when we partner with local towns, we can always do more for land conservation. And they thank the town of Easton for their leadership. What is, what is a conservation easement? It means you can't build on it. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it's supposed to be supposedly in perpetuity, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually I just drove by there. I was thinking about you when I drove by yeah. going to, um, not you know, we don't plug businesses, but uh, to get some apples at Silverman's. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, no, so it's a beautiful property, and it was such a relief to hear that that's sale because you never know until it's done, it's not done, you know, and um so now they they main, they're going to maintain, um, you know, part of it, and the town will preserve the other part of it. So that is accessible to anybody. Yes, anybody. It's, you don't have to live in Easton. To go, no, yeah. and the Mill River um, is a very uh, abundant trout stream, mm. and I shouldn't tell that though. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, and, and actually, to, to um, actually be. Kind of precise. It's at the intersection of Buck, Buck Hill Road and yeah. Park Avenue. Yeah, yeah. Buck Hill and Park, you yep. said? South Park Avenue. Yes. Yeah, and Park. South Park is, you know, that's why it, it's, you know, been referred to that way. But um, this has been going on for over 50 years now, the fight to preserve this. And I'm just one of the people who was working on it. There have been myriads of people working on this over the years. And, oh, they, they I forgot to mention, they, they are naming it for William Kapinski and his wife, Patricia. And she, he, Bill Kapinski was first selectman in Easton, and he was very, very involved. And he's also a lawyer, and he did a lot of, you know, pro bono work to help, you know, fight development on the land to go after the um, people who wanted to develop it. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. so it's very nice that they're naming it for him, his wife. Well, let's get out there and recreate. Mm-hmm. Yep. Indeed. I can't wait to... I, I don't think... When we were in Easton... No. no we weren't anywhere near... Oh, you probably no. went to Gilberti's, right? We went to Gilberti's and then the Sport Hill Farm, and, but no, it's so it's from a there, distance. From there... That, so that's... And by the way, that in case we can trace the um, actual... Location of this. So if you whoa, 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 let me finish. We got off. We got off the Parkway at Sport Hill exit. There's a Sport Hill exit, I think, on the Merritt Parkway. There's a Sport yeah. Hill exit, and actually, if we had left Patties and turned left on Sport Hill Road past um, the Easton Village store, you can make a left on I think it's Old Oak Road, Old and Oak, you yeah. can yeah, you can follow that road, and that will take you right there. Really? How far from there? How far? Like, yeah. you know, 10 minutes. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a mile, yeah. maybe. Maybe a mile. Nice. All right, we're going to... Go to Steve. Definitely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> definitely visit the... Uh, oh, is, is Steve there? <laughs> I'm right here. <laughs> I know, I'm just... We hope around. he is. He's been, doing, he's been doing all kinds of work while we've been chattering here. Steve, what's going on at Masaro Farm? There's all sorts of connections to make because you mentioned the, the conservation easement. And so Masaro is in a conservation easement. So mm-hmm. this land is preserved from development and is only to be used for agriculture uh, or recreation. And those are the two sort of key words in the conservation easement. And ultimately, 
<clears throat> the board of selectmen in Woodbridge uh, back in 2008, I believe it was, you know, uh, hmm. as, okay. a, as a farm and, and leased the property um, to our nonprofit organization, Community Farm. So that's how we get to uh, to farm this land. Uh, Steve, um, one that second. Is, a little bit of uh, dropping out on your phone there. I'm not sure if you can turn in a different direction, maybe give us a better sign. All right, I'll see. Usually we're pretty steady, but you never know. We have moments here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's lots going on on the farm right now. It's, you know, it's mid, getting to late October. And um, as we've talked about before, because we grow year round, this is a, a sort of critical time for us. It's, it's not quite like spring in that we're trying to hustle things into the ground, but we have a limited window, you know, to get a, uh, a good bit of growth in some crops that we want to um, harvest over the winter months. So uh, we are actually removing tomatoes from our high tunnels. Uh, we've got two high tunnels that are full of, um, of tomato plants. So one's got um, larger tomatoes and others got um, cherry and plum tomatoes. And though those will continue to fruit if we let them stay for another few weeks, they, they don't produce at the same level um, <clears throat> because the days are shorter. As, as uh, Laura mentioned, we've got less daylight. Um, they don't uh, mature as quickly. They don't ripen as quickly. And so we've been pulling all the green tomatoes off this week. Um, they, those can be used for green tomato salsa, uh, which, which we have had. Um, there's all sorts of ways to use green tomatoes, but <clears throat> you can also let them ripen. But I think they taste better green at this stage and, and better mm. cooked. Um, they just don't develop the flavor in the same way they do in midsummer. Um, so we're pulling out those plants from the tunnels so that we can get something else in. And one of our, our tunnels will be available for um, for chicken pasture in the winter. So um, if there's a big snowstorm, if we've got you know icy ground, we want the chickens still to be able to behave like chickens and scratch in the ground. So we have one tunnel that's dedicated for them. So we'll get a, a mixed cover crop of growing in in one of the tunnels. So some some rye, some clover, some oats, some pea, vetch, um, and it's a little late for some of those cover crop items to get started. But in the tunnel, it'll nurture them along a little bit further with that protection from the the layer of plastic. How many chickens will be frolicking in that high tunnel? We will we'll probably keep about 100 for, for the winter. We have um, about 160 right now out in the field. Um, but it's a little, the, the, the space we've got in the high tunnel, it's 30 by uh, 96. And we can roll up the side so they can go outside into the pasture on, on either side of the tunnel. And we'll move them out of there. Um, as well, when the weather's nice enough, you know, here, particularly in southern Connecticut, we get plenty of stretches in each of the winter months where uh, we're not worried about frost or freezing. Uh, we're not worried about the chickens being out and the, the ground isn't frozen. Um, but it's too much of an impact on that space to have all 160. So uh, some of those birds will will, will move on elsewhere uh, later this later this year, and we'll just keep about 100 uh, in the tunnel. What about the rest of them? The rest of them will move on. You know, we've offered them for sale, whether it's for people to have in their home gardens or to other farms. Hmm. So uh, we'll find a new home, which is what we've done the last couple of years. And these chickens produce, are, are egg producers or are they? Yes. Yeah, I see. Okay. Yes, these are egg layers. Um, 
you know, the, the breeds that get used in New England often are, are pretty good for both uh, laying and potentially eating, if that's something that you're interested in doing. Um, but we raise ours just for egg laying. Your, your eggs are great. I've had them. Yeah. Um, so, but you, I know that, that um, I think Rich and I were there in the, in the spring. So you guys have stuff going on. You know, you have some food all year round. We do. We do. So uh, part of the time to make sure that we'll have some fresh greens, because really the roots and things that we're still harvesting now, we're still pulling sweet potatoes out of the ground. We're still putting potatoes out of the ground. Um, You know, those can store and last and along with something like carrots or um, winter squash. But it's really nice to have um, freshly harvested produce as well. So our tunnels, you know, they're, they're just like greenhouses, but there's no additional heat. So we're just using the heat uh, from the sun, you know, coming through the tunnel and getting trapped in there by the layer of plastic to keep it a little warmer. And we're just regulating the heat by opening the doors and rolling, rolling up the sides and, and closing them uh, as needed. Maybe we'll have so, quite a quite a moderate winter again this year. Yeah, you know, we did last year, so you Do, never know. Wow. Will it will it stay uh, warm enough for the chickens? Yes, and these are hardy breeds that can handle you know it being quite cold. Um, they, they could live outside. You know, you want to have shelter for them, um, but but we keep them in the tunnel to protect them and um, so that they have uh, have ground that's not frozen to scratch them. And so they're getting fresh pasture too, so right. they're not just reliant on the feed. Um, so, you know, that's why we've dedicated that space and we have just adjacent to the one tunnel we have set, and then we make sure that that's set with a really nice pasture as well. So we're trying to encourage that growth uh, as much as we can now. And all the fall crops that we're still harvesting, as soon as they're done, we are either getting cover crop into the ground or um, spreading compost and then covering with leaves to protect for the winter. So just just started that process um, with spreading compost this morning. You know, soon enough, there'll be leaf, leaves being collected uh, by landscapers in the area that they'll drop off. We'll make a giant pile to, to compost those leaves, but some of the leaves will, will spread uh, to cover our garlic uh, that we'll plant in November and uh, to cover some other um, some other crops and maybe if there's any bare ground that we need to protect, we'll, we'll use some leaves for that that'll sort of add organic matter and, and protect that top layer of soil for uh, the winter months. Hey, Steve, uh, do you have to worry about predators with the chickens? We do, yes. Um, you know, we, you know, we've got about 10 acres of, of crops, about 5 acres of pasture, and another 30 acres plus of woods and wetlands here. And we're happy to have all the creatures that live here, um, you know, and, and be part of the sort of circle of life in the ecology, you know, that's on the farm. Uh, but we don't want those things to, to necessarily eat our chickens. So, you know, there are foxes, there are coyotes, there are bobcats, there are, um, there are all sorts of, uh, of hawks as well. And, you know, the chickens look like a decent meal for a lot of them. Um, so we protect them with electric fencing. Um, around their pasture. So they're, they're in a mobile coop that moves around about five acres of pasture. And as they move, we move their electric, electric fencing with them to keep out the, um, the sort of ground predators like, like the foxes, coyotes. I mean, even raccoons might be able to get in there. To, to, we don't see much of them um, out in our field. They're more on the edge of the property. Um, but uh, hawks want to get that at them too. So we have 
scare tape and sort of a, a netting over part of their uh, pasture so they've got protected space uh, to go to. The chickens are pretty aware of what's going on, so they, they, they know when uh, when to take cover. And, you know, we do our best to keep them uh, free from predation. Do you have a lot of fisher cats? Uh, happily, no. You know, they don't. Yeah, those are vicious. Fisher cats don't. Yeah, they're vicious. And they don't, also don't want to be seen, so I don't think I would know it. But happily, um, you know, we haven't had incidents that would suggest that we have a fisher cat issue. Oh, good. That's nice. Have you, uh, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if there's yeah. some on the property, but uh, they've they at least stayed away from our chickens. Uh, Laura, have you had encounters with fisher cats? You sounded like you knew Well, I, I know several people um, who, when I was in Easton, several people there would have instances with fisher cats um, just like, I don't even want to talk about ripping apart their chickens, but... Um, and then the hawks. Those are the two things I've heard of myself. So what, just for... Our edification, what is a fisher cat? What does it look like? How big is it? Steve? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, what, actually, more like what? what is it? What is, what, um... Yeah, a fisher cat is a type of weasel, so like, oh, a, okay. like a ferret They're really in the wild. ugly. Um, well, come on now. <laughs> I I mean, know. They're God's oh, creature. It's, it, it's an animal. <laughs> I think, yeah. Um, you know, and they're out, and they're, they're you know, they hunt their food just like lots of predators do so um i think they're um you know they're a little scary they make kind of a, a scary sound those kind of fisher cat screams they do they do you know, so well, it might oh, be a little bit i had those in really the woods beside my house your, your yeah. how big are they they're not that big um you know I don't know what I want to call them. Uh, they're like a, a large cat. A, a, you know, they're going to be smaller than a fox. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Bears don't yeah. like chickens, do they? What don't? Bears. They don't go <laughs> after chickens for food. That would be think. a funny sight, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've not, you know, we've not had uh, bears uh, interact with our chickens that I'm aware of. You know, we, we do have bees on the property. As Vincent also often talks about, you've got fencing, you know, around the, the bees to protect um, the hives uh, and the honey and such. You know, bears, like lots of creatures out there, might be interested in the feed and the food. And that's something to be mindful of. You know, where, where there's chickens, there's going to be chicken feed, which means there's some mix of grain that's available for them. And so that can often attract, um, you know, wildlife to your chickens. And I think for people who are in um, suburban areas, particularly, you know, where there might be more raccoons and such, um, you know, the, the raccoons are going to be attracted both to the feed and to the chickens as well. Um, which can lead to uh, encounters um, that that you might not be happy about. Um, so you know, and they they will try day after day, and, and like hawks here, they're circling all the time. And we we hope the hawks go after other things that go after our uh, plants, but uh, we try to keep them away and, and protect our chickens as best mm-hmm. we can. Steve, last word. Uh, what? How does the distribution of of your winter crops go? Is it, your CSA? I take it does not continue through the winter. That's true. So we are right now, we're in 15 of 20 of our summer sort of main season CSA, which was from mid-June to the end of October. We have about 275 
families uh, participating in that. And then as soon as that finishes up, we start a six-week CSA option that covers November and December. Hmm. Uh, but we do it for a smaller amount of people. We have about 150 uh, taking part in that. Um, we don't have the same amount of produce available to offer. So um, we've got 150 folks taking advantage of that uh, in November and December. And then, you know, January through May, we attend one of the city seed markets on, on Saturday. They, they offer a winter market um, January through March. And then, um, you know, early spring, April, May, um, you know, so we tend to go every other week, you know, alternating weeks from January through through May as we are sort of staggering our winter harvest and then starting our spring harvest. Um, so, yeah, the, for the winter and then we've typically – had uh, on the same schedule every other week, you know, one day open at the farm for people to come. And so we'll usually send out there to say, this is what's available, you know, either order online or, or come to the farm uh, on a Friday afternoon. Fridays are your or farm stand at Masaro Farm. Yes. Yep. Very good. Steve Mono from Masaro Farm, thank you very much for that lively and informative report. Great. Thanks, nice. Steve. All right. And uh, Laura, take it from here. Okay. We have um, a very interesting special guest. Dr. Kelsey E. Fisher began working at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in January. Um, She earned her Ph.D. and conducted postdoctoral research in the field of entomology, studying monarch butterfly conservation at Iowa State University. Her research focuses on discerning animal movement patterns and space use in, a, in fragmented landscapes. And she's currently focusing on bumblebees, monarch butterflies, and the spotted lanternfly. Welcome, Kelsey. Tell us about your projects. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so the the basis of, of all the research projects that I work on is that we live in a, a very fragmented world, whether it when I was in Iowa was because of agriculture production or here with a lot of urbanization. Um, but habitat that is beneficial for um, like for our beneficial insects, like our monarch butterflies and our bumblebees um, is, is separated and we often have small areas. Um, and so the work I, I'm doing is trying to figure out how we can create a functionally connected landscape. So even though it's a bunch of small patches in different areas, um, how can, how can we make sure Sure that the insects from one habitat restoration or, or pollinator garden in someone's backyard can can uh, can can be connected with the the other pollinator gardens or habitat restorations. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's that's all the stuff I'm working on. <laughs> so Kelsey uh, Richard here, uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. So what is the? I mean, you know, I think everybody knows. The monarch, you know, it's when you see one, you feel like you're having a great day. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of a blessing when when they appear. Uh, But tell us more about the monarch butterfly. What what is their lifestyle, you know, and, and how do they how are they beneficial? Yeah, wonderful. So the monarch butterfly is a um a multi-generational, it, it undergoes a multi-generational migration every year. So all the monarchs as adults overwinter in central Mexico. And then um, in 
about March, they'll start the migration northward. So those butterflies from Mexico make it to about Texas and Oklahoma, and they lay eggs on milkweed, which is their obligate host. It means that as caterpillars, they have to feed on milkweed. They can't feed on any other species. So the females will lay eggs on milkweed, and then the caterpillars will grow and then become the next generation of adults. And those adults pick up the, the migration, so they'll continue northward. And that's when I would start to see them in Iowa um, is about late May, early June. Uh, And then another generation continues. And then those butterflies can either stay in Iowa, continue north uh, into Canada or cross the Appalachian Mountains. And we start to see them in about July. And then we have about one more generation of butterflies. And then the last generation comes out in August and September. And those last butterflies are the ones that migrate all the way back down to Mexico. So one of the reasons that people really care about monarchs is um, because they cross all of the United States east of the Rocky Mountains. So everybody east of the Rocky Mountains has had some type of interaction with a monarch butterfly, I'm sure, um, whether it's they see one or they hear about them or or any of those kinds of things. And so um, the monarchs really... um, really hold hold a place in, in a lot of people's hearts because everybody's kind of seen them and interacted with them. Um, and uh, from a research perspective, the monarch serves as kind of a, a, a canary in a coal mine or a, a, a focal species that people can get behind. So uh, one of the things since the, the monarchs uh, overwinter all in Mexico for the past um uh, 30 years or so, we've had the really great opportunity to approximate population size. And so all the butterflies hang out in the trees together, and we have people that are working at the conservation area, and they walk around the outside of where all the butterflies are taking up space, and they measure how much space the butterflies are taking up. And so the butterflies are always trying to stay nice and close to each other because they're trying to stay warm through the winter. And so the more space that the butterflies are taking up, means that there's more butterflies. And so for the past 30 years, we have these measurements and it's uh, there's very clear indications that the population has been declining. Um, and so if the monarch butterfly is in decline, then lots of other things probably are as well. Uh, and uh, so the monarch uses the same habitats as a lot of our pollinator species. And so we're able to do habitat restorations with the monarch butterfly as our poster child, but we can add other um, requirements for habitat into these restorations so that we can be benefit, benefiting our other bees and, and other, other butterfly species that are in decline as well. Where, where are the, or, or let's put it this way, at what point in their journey of, of, that uh, starts in Mexico and continues uh, so many thousands of miles into North America. At what point in that journey is the, is the decline in the population occurring? Has that been pinpointed? Well, it's, it's kind of all of them. <laughs> so uh, there's been lots of speculation and reason for the population decline. Some of it is logging in Mexico, uh, where their overwintering site is. Then we also have um, uh, lo- the loss of milkweed in the United States because of urbanization or agriculture production and the introduction of glyphosate-resistant crops really uh, took out a lot of the the milkweed that was hanging out in and around uh, corn and soybean fields in the Midwest. Um, But then there's also uh, like 
climate change and pesticide use and uh, all kinds of things. So there's lots of different things that, that are causing the monarch butterflies decline. Um, the one that I've focused my work on is on the milkweed the loss of milkweed. Um, and, and the reason that I did that is because if there's no milkweed, then there's no monarchs. So all of the other factors um, happen too, and they have impacts. But in order to increase the monarch butterflies population, we need to have more milkweed so that there's more milkweed uh, for the monarchs to lay their eggs on and for the caterpillars to feed on. And so that's kind of the thing that I felt like I, we've been able to control the most. We took the milkweed away, so we should be putting the milkweed back. Um, so yes, there's lots of lots of different uh, potential causes for the decline. And I mean, I'm sure there's compounding impacts too if you if you have a bunch of different things together. But um, but I've I've focused my energy on the the milkweed. So I know you um, told me you're writing a research proposal to study new milkweed growth versus old for the monarch caterpillars and butterflies, and that you've been observing that um, the newer growth is seems to be better um, for the monarch. So how how would this research uh, figure into all of this? Yeah, yeah. So I have been doing a lot of projects with monarch caterpillars and watching them feed on milkweed in the greenhouse or in the field and seeing like how they're naturally behaving with their milkweed. So the reason that, that this came about is that, um, it's, uh, so if you look, so, so milkweed, common milkweed, it's a, a disturbance plant and it grows, it reproduces through its rhizomes, but also through seed. So, um, oftentimes you can get a big patch of, of common milkweed, um, and in those big patches of common milkweed, uh, people have, have looked for how many eggs and larvae they find, and you can find maybe about 10 eggs in a patch of milkweed. So also milkweed can be present in isolated stems of milkweed. So you don't, it doesn't always have a big patch around it. Sometimes it's just a single isolated stem. And on that isolated stem of milkweed, you also can have 10 eggs. So the monarchs are using um, milkweed across the landscape in, in really different ways. So even if, so, and, and my question was, um, can 10 butterflies come off of one stem of milkweed? Why are they putting 10 eggs on one isolated stem if there's not enough food for all of those offspring to feed on? Um, and so I wanted to look to see, um, uh, if that was enough food for the caterpillars. And it, it turns out that one isolated stem of milkweed is probably enough for one caterpillar to make it all the way to the adult stage. But the problem is that these caterpillars are moving among stems of, of milkweed. So they don't spend their entire life on one stem of milkweed. So if we have an isolated milkweed ramet then, or milkweed stem, then um, the likelihood of a caterpillar finding another milkweed stem is, is fairly low. Um, but if you have these bigger patches, then, then they'll most likely find um, milkweed. But we're noticing that the monarchs don't like to lay their eggs in the big patches. So there's kind of a sweet spot maybe in the middle where maybe it would be nice to have patches of like three or four stems of milkweed to support a monarch um, and also to increase the, the likelihood of, of oviposition. And so through all of this, work looking at, um, at, at, at caterpillar movement at a oviposition rates in different patches of milkweed. Um, I started to notice that 
the, the females are laying all their eggs on the top portion of the milkweed stems. And also the caterpillars are feeding on those top portions of the milkweed stems. And those top portions are the pieces that are the parts of the plant that are a lot softer. Um, it's where the new growth is in comparison to the, the, the leaves at the bottom, which are harder and tougher. Um, and so I'm noticing all of this and I'm like, oh, well, maybe there's something going on here. Maybe they, they do better on new leaves or maybe they prefer new leaves or, or things like that. And so um, over this past summer, I fed a bunch of caterpillars leaves from the top of milkweed plants and a bunch of other caterpillars leaves from the bottom of the milkweed plants. And it looks like the caterpillars that fed on the new leaves um, actually developed a day faster than the caterpillars that were fed old leaves. And as a caterpillar, that's a good thing because less time as a caterpillar means um, that you have less potential for predation or parasitism or things like that. So getting to the, the chrysalis stage faster is a good thing as a caterpillar. Um, and then we also did some preference tests where we fed some caterpillars. They had an option between the new leaves and the old leaves. And it looks like they're having a preference uh, for the new leaves as well. Um, and while I'm doing all of these things, I'm watching what's happening in Connecticut. And um, in in Connecticut, the monarchs, maybe there's a few earlier in the year, but for the most part, you start to see a, a big uh, increase in the monarchs in Connecticut in July. And at that time, uh, when we're seeing all these monarchs coming through, um, the milkweed is already in its reproductive stage, which means that it's not going to be producing any more of those young, soft leaves that the monarch uh, females like to oviposit on and that the caterpillars like to feed on. And so um, there's been some work that looks at like, oh, if you cut the milkweed stem back when it's when it's uh, getting tall, then a new milkweed stem will, will start to grow out of it. So the proposal that I'm writing is to look at um, if we clip some of our milkweed back in June, uh, does that make the, the period of time where the, the milkweed is, is producing new leaves longer into the season and does that potentially match better with, um, with monarch production? So if we cut some milkweed back, do we get more eggs and more caterpillars and then more butterflies um, in comparison to if we just let it, let it grow naturally? And, and uh, so, yeah, so that, that's kind of the, the big story with all the, the monarch caterpillars and new and old leaves and, and things. Wow, it's all about the milkweed. Are there other types? Yes, it is. <laughs> are there other types <laughs> of milk milkweed that are not, uh, you know, beneficial to monarchs? So monarchs can feed on any type of milkweed as long as it's a milkweed. Uh, I specifically focus on common milkweed, but a lot of people, um, I've been noticing a lot of people are using butterfly milkweed for landscaping, which is also good for the monarchs. And then swamp milkweed is also a nice one. So the, the common butterfly and swamp are all um, commercially available. You usually can find them in a, a nursery, not a, not a big box store. So you won't be able to find them in Home Depot or Lowe's. But if you have a local nursery, um, usually uh, a lot of – so in, in recent years, people have been um, – advocating for native plants in those small nurseries. And so often those small nurseries will have milkweed uh, for sale. Uh, and so those are the three that are, are typically, um, are typically you're able to find them, but I'm pretty sure in Connecticut, there's seven native species of milkweed. Are there any other insects that prefer the milkweed for, as a pollination process? Yeah. So um, milkweed is, is kind of special. Uh, it has cardinalides. It, so it, it produces a um, 
uh, defensive compound called cardinalides, and it's a, a steroid-like compound. And this uh, cardinalide is actually uh, toxic in high concentrations. So monarchs have the ability to feed on milkweed and sequester the cardinalide. So the cardinalide doesn't hurt the monarch. Um, and then by having by the monarch sequestering the cardinalides in their body, then it makes it that if another insect or bird or something tries to feed on it, then it'll it'll make it sick. There's actually a really great classic photo of a blue jay that just ate a monarch butterfly and then it, it threw up. And oh. so if you have time, you should Google it because it's, it's, it's a really great image. Um, but because of those, uh, because the plant has cardinalides, only specific insects are able to feed on it. Um, or, or uh, so uh, as for, for insects that feed specifically on milkweed, we have the monarchs. We also have um, a tussock moth that feeds on the the monarch, or feeds on the milkweed, sorry. Um, and then there's milkweed bugs, milkweed beetles, and some aphids. And, and that's kind of the, the community of, of insects that feed on the leaves. Um, when it comes to the flowers, those don't really have all of the, the cardinalides in the nectar. So a lot of different things will feed on the milkweed flowers. Um, I see bumblebees all the time feeding on milkweed. Uh, uh, yeah, so so there's lots of things that'll feed on the flowers, but the the thing is that the the flowers only bloom for a short period of time, like most other plants that have flowers. So I think it's just about like maybe two weeks uh, in in July uh, that you'll that you'll get the milkweed flowers. So um, so yeah. Okay, uh, Kelsey, uh, this is Chris. I, I just wanted to mention um, that a few years ago. Um, I was able to get free milkweed seeds. Um, if you go on the internet and basically uh, punch in free milkweed, you, there are places that offer them for free where you just basically send a um, you know, self step, uh, self-addressed stamped envelope and they'll send you free milkweed seeds. Did you, so did you oh, that's, grow those? That's I, I, I didn't actually grow them. You, no. wasted, you wasted your seeds? Um, well, I, I, I still have them. I still have them. I mean, se- seeds can last a while. Now you're in Hamden. Yeah, you can, yeah. You can grow them. <laughs> yeah. So um, one thing with, with growing milkweed uh, is that the, the seeds need to go through a cold stratification period. So they you either need to plant them in the fall so that the seeds are out throughout the winter and the winter acts as the natural cold stratification period. Or you can do an artificial cold stratification where you, you put the seeds in with some sand and some vermiculite and a little bit of water. And if you've ever made pie crust, you want the, the seeds and vermiculite and sand to feel like pie crust where it, it can come together, but it easily falls apart. Um, and it's not too wet and it's not too dry. It's it's really hard to explain. But, but if you've ever made pie crust, that's the feeling you want. Um, and then you put them in the fridge for about two weeks. And then your your seeds should be cold stratified, and they'd be able to germinate for you. Um, oh, the wow. cold is really important. Otherwise, so planting seeds for milkweed in the middle of the summer is not the right way to do it. So we want to make sure that you're either planting in the fall or you're you're going through a cold stratification period in your refrigerator. Let's see if Steve uh, Mono, our uh, farmer from uh, Masaro Farm, has any questions. Well, one of the the caterpillars and butterflies we see a lot here is the the black swallowtail. Uh, it's oh, often yeah. in our in our dill and fennel, um, and I, we see monarchs too. And there's plenty of um, milkweed throughout the property here. But I wonder, you know, how they how they compare the the, the black swallowtail and how prevalent they are, you know, with respect to the uh, monarch. 
Yeah. So uh, generally speaking, well, first off, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I don't know a whole lot about the black swallowtails, um, but generally speaking, they are more more common anymore because, um, but also the, I'm pretty sure that the black swallowtails don't migrate the way that the monarchs do. So um, they're kind of here all the time and I'm pretty sure they overwinter as a chrysalis, but I might be wrong on that. Um, I'm saying I, I, I don't know a ton about them, but um the one thing that I will say is if you have them in your dill or, or something like that, then, then you're special. And so you should, you should support them in, in your, in your garden. I know it's so hard to say because you want to grow it and you want to um, have it for yourself. But if there's like, maybe you could give a little bit of your, your dill to the, to the butterflies. I, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to, um, yeah. to balance all of those things. <laughs> We're totally happy to but have them beautiful. here and try to keep them together. They are beautiful. And, and then they make yeah. for fun educational bits too. So, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I often people often tell me that um, that they find monarchs in their in their dill, and uh, I always have to explain to them like, no, those are swallowtails because the monarchs only feed on milkweed. Um, but I mean, all butterflies kind of have a, a a a host plant range, and a lot of butterflies are pretty specialist on on some things. So, um, so yeah, so monarchs feed on milkweed, and and the swallowtails you can find in your dill. <laughs> Down to our last couple of minutes, Kelsey. Last question. I've had the experience of, you know, taking a walk someplace and there's a patch of sunlight and there'll be like 12 monarchs all just sitting on the ground, like kind of slowly moving their wings. What's that about? Is that, are they about to, uh, you know... <laughs> tell, tell me, I'm not, I don't know what that is. Tell me what it what it's about. Yeah, so um, if it's early in the morning, it could be that those butterflies are using that patch of sunlight to warm up. So insects uh, are are really dependent on temperature, and so when it's a chilly morning, they can't move, um, and so they need to need to warm up with the sun. And so if they're all there and they're kind of moving their wings a little bit, they're probably just trying to do some thermoregulation so that they can mm. get active. Um, in the fall, oftentimes the butterflies will start to roost together. So in, in Mexico, they're all roosting um, and they're all uh, overwintering, clustered together nice and tight. And on the fall migration, which is like September into October, um, they start to do that behavior as they're flying south. So often in like a, a bunch of trees that are a windbreak or or something like that, a, a bunch of butterflies will, will cluster together uh, for overnight. And so they, they kind of rest there together. And then in the morning, they'll all continue their migration south. Um, so I'm going to say it's probably thermoregulation, but you might have been really lucky to see some type of a, a migratory roost. All right. Well, this conversation could go on a lot longer. It's so fascinating. Kelsey Thank Fisher. You, uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kelsey Fisher from the uh, Connecticut Agricultural uh, Experiment Station right there in New Haven. Steve Munno from Bazaar Farm. Once again, a great report. Great to have you with us. Chris Ferry, Chris Ferrier, glad you uh, could join yeah, us. I'm glad I can come. And Laura Modlin. Yay! <laughs> and Richard Hill. And Richard Hill. All and, right. Thanks, thanks all. Steve. Yep. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. We'll be back on November 2nd. Yes, it is. I've got no additives, ain't no preservatives. I tell you, it's intuitive, baby. Downright. This is the Gaia Gram. 
Environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. A new study that examines both the physical and socioeconomic effects of sea level rise on Florida's Miami-Dade County area finds that in coming decades, four out of five residents may face disruption or displacement whether they live in flood zones or not. With a one-meter sea level increase, a middle-of-the-road scenario for the end of this century, 56% of the population, primarily on higher ground, called the displaced, could face pressures to relocate. The next largest group is labeled the trapped, some 19% of the population living in chronically flooded territory, but without the means to flee to safer nearby ground. Another 19% live in areas not prone to flooding and are able to remain there. Just 7%, the wealthiest, the researchers labeled as migrating, would be directly exposed to flooding in waterfront or low-lying areas, but able to move to safer spots within the metro area. The Negro River, the Amazon's second largest tributary, last week reached its lowest level since official measurements began near Manaus 121 years ago. The record confirms that this part of the world's largest rainforest is suffering its worst drought, just a little over two years after its most significant flooding. Throughout Brazil's Amazon, low river levels have left hundreds of river communities isolated and struggling to get access to drinking water. Last week, ExxonMobil signed a $60 billion deal to buy Pioneer Natural Resources, a company that made its fortune through fracking. The acquisition, Exxon's biggest in almost 25 years and the biggest corporate purchase of 2023, represents a very expensive bet that fossil fuels will remain a central part of the global economy for the foreseeable future. ExxonMobil chief executive Darren Woods told CNBC that as the world looks to transition and find lower sources of affordable energy with lower emissions, fossil fuels, oil, and gas are going to continue to play a role. Oil will be around for a long time. The World Bank's new president has called into question the vast amounts of money that governments spend subsidizing fossil fuels. Speaking at the bank's annual meeting in Morocco last week, Ajay Banga said that $1.25 trillion that goes towards making fuel, fisheries, and agriculture cheaper every year is too much. These three sectors are responsible for up to $6 trillion of environmental impact, and the bank wants to see climate change action prioritized instead. The World Bank doesn't have the power to force governments to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies. It can only advise and pressure them. But pressure is mounting on this system from numerous quarters. Rivian, the California electric truck and SUV manufacturer, just signed its largest contract yet to buy renewable energy as a means of working toward its net zero emissions commitment. The 100 megawatt deal, disclosed in July, is notable not just for its size, but for also its location in rural Kentucky, atop the former site of one of the largest coal mines in Appalachia. It's a massive infrastructure project with an estimated price tag of $1 billion. A vacant lot outside Boston has been turned into a quarter-acre food forest. Unlike community gardens, food forests mimic natural ecosystems with a focus on native food-bearing plants that provide habitats for insects and birds, and anyone in the community can harvest food for free. The group that helped create the food forest hopes to develop 30 of them by 2030. 
And in Wyoming, a food forest recently added a medicinal garden consisting of over 100 plants that have spiritual, medicinal, or nutritional significance to the Northern Cheyenne tribe and help avoid the loss of traditional knowledge and plant varieties. And finally, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said Monday that it is delisting 21 species from the Endangered Species Act because they are now extinct. This was the Gaia Gram. Environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. WPKN programming is supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash en. You're listening to WPKN Bridgeport, 89.5 FM and streaming.